Hello, and welcome back to another edition of Humanitarian AI Today, a podcast series produced by the Humanitarian AI meetup groups in Cambridge, San Francisco, Seattle, New York City, Toronto, Montreal, London, Paris, Berlin, Oslo, Geneva, Zurich, Bangalore, Tel Aviv, and Tokyo. I'm Roderick Bessling. I'm head of the data analytics unit at the Norwegian Energy Council. And I'm the guest interviewer today, and I'm very happy to be able to interview a friend and former colleague, John Adams, who I worked with together at DFID and also the FCDO, and who's recently retired and has set up his own company, Tetrahedra Digital. Also on the call is Brent Phillips, who produces the podcast series, and he might join us later for some questions and answers as well. In terms of the conversation today, we'd like to ask John a little bit about his experience around his work on open data sharing frameworks. So all the work that he's done on transparency and open data the last 20 years. And also about the, the ability of these different open data sources to serve as a basis for information for emerging new AI applications. John, welcome to the podcast. And maybe for the audience and the listeners, Tell us a little about yourself and, and how you got into the, the international development and humanitarian work and the role that you had within DFID and then the FCD. Thanks, Roderick. You probably don't know, most people don't know, I actually trained and practiced as a geologist in the oil industry, including as a founder in a 1990 startup. Geology is this really interesting set of topics. It, it really encourages polymathic thinking in that You've got this curiosity extending across multiple topics, chemistry, biology, physics, and so on. And during my time as a geologist, I had lots of exposure to data formats, data standards, data processing, and that sort of thing. It's a very data intensive industry. And that led me to a midlife career change at the age of 40, when I went back to university and learned how to code properly, learning Java and stuff like that, you know, back at university. Um, at the end of that course, I landed a, an entry-level developer role at this government department called Department for International Development, which I wasn't really aware of and, and until then. But because I, I wanted to get into something that had a, you know, was something globally useful, it was really interesting to get into international development and begin to learn more about it through that role. I was there for 23 years started off learning about architecture, agile, software development, and then all of the complexities around the international development domain. You know, what does it mean to, to be running projects globally of doing, looking at health, looking at governance, looking at sanitation, looking at education, that sort of thing. And that then brought me into the world of transparency and open data standards for development humanitarian activities. I differed and then FCDO, I was responsible for the digital data systems that run the UK's international development program. I think much of our focus was on the internal running of that program using tools like the aid management platform that we built ourselves. But we also had a, an imperative to share open data on the UK's activities, an important aspect of government transparency and accountability policy. But it also led to work internationally on trying to align those things through things like the International Aid Transparency Initiative and um, building things like the Development Tracker platform. I'm now retired. I've spent my 23 years with government. I retired a couple of months ago, but I'm still curious. Thanks, John, so much. And also really good to, to hear from you that it's, yeah, it's never too late to change careers and really inspiring that you made that change from one sector to another. Maybe to help frame the conversation with you today and based on your role at uh, DFID and FCDO, 
Can you tell us a little bit more about what is transparency and open data sharing in the development and humanitarian sector? What is it and why is it important? So open data sharing in development and humanitarian has been a long-standing goal. I think there's loads of initiatives out there and we'll touch on some of them later, but for, for essentially two reasons. One is we're accountable as development humanitarian players to the people who fund development humanitarian um, activities not just to the funders but also to the beneficiaries of those activities so how can we be accountable to both the funders and the beneficiaries in terms of what we're doing on their behalf is something about that telling the story in public so that people are really clear about what's happening but the second imperative is right operational effectiveness you know it's a really complex field of development humanitarian there's lots of moving parts there's lots of people working in tandem there's lots of opportunity for people either to overlap and you know you end up having many people doing the same thing in the same place I think we've seen that in many many disasters and so on where people get confused because they don't know what what other people are doing or probably worse leaving gaps where there are people who are in need but aren't receiving anything because nobody's aware that they're in need and nobody's actually aware of who's delivering those services open data and being openly sharing about activities can really help us to, to to fill those gaps and to make sure that we're not duplicating responsibility or getting confused. And it's really very much a two-way sharing of information from funders to implementers and then from implementers who are achieving something back up to funders. Um, I think there's a there's a long history of fairly big declarations like the um, you know the aid effectiveness agreements back in 2005 and 2008, Paris and Accra. The grand bargain in 2016 for humanitarian effectiveness and even the the most recent announcements on the global partnership for sustainable development data all of those things are really quite high goals in terms of making open data available to people so that we can be more effective and more accountable thanks john yeah and no, i think it's a, it's a good point to really reiterate the, the point of accountability a lot of the work that we do for the the people most in need are is money is taxpayer money and yeah it's important that they have visibility and insights as well but what's being done with those funds and i think that's where open data and transparency really plays a big role and then on your second point about operational effectiveness yes i, I think also within an organization itself it's i think a, a data standard is such a useful mechanism to better help understand what's going on within a, a donor or a, an organization but also as you mentioned uh, the sector there's a lot of different stakeholders involved and it's sometimes really difficult to properly understand who's doing what. On the topic of open data and transparency, you spent uh, a lot of your career working on something called the IATI, the, the International Aid Transparency Initiative. I'd assume most of the listeners probably aren't so familiar with IATI. So could you tell us uh, what is IATI? So IATI is, a, on the tin states, it's a multi-stakeholder initiative. It came out of the, the Paris and Accra conversations back in the 2000s, which were really determined at, at are doing things like promoting things like country ownership. So partner countries should own the development work that's being done in their space. It promoted things like donor harmonization, which means that donors should really know what they're doing to each other. And through that, it promoted things like, well, one of the ways to achieve those goals is through having open data and open sharing of information on the development and humanitarian activities that are going on in those countries to really give people ownership and to allow people to coordinate better. So those are the primary goals around it. 
Out of that initiative then came a formal data standard called the International Aid Transparency Initiative Data Standard. You can find it on iatistandard.org. And it's a fairly comprehensive standard that looks at at development activities and all the different dimensions of those activities, putting all the data together into a really good relational data structure. Um, IATI is not just a, a data standard, it's also a movement. And I think it's pulling together the, the range of stakeholders, and that's been one of its strengths. We've got publishers that range from global multilaterals, global finance institutions, national donors like DFID or USAID, international NGOs, small NGOs, private sector partners, um, organizations and foundations. There's a whole range of, of people, a big, really big spread across the, the sector. I think since we first published in 2011, there are now 1,600 publishers who publish regular open data on their activities, covering around about 800,000 individual project activities across the world. That's quite an impressive data set. And, um, all in a very standard format. There are probably a few global players still missing. I think it'd be lovely to see a bit more information, for example, on China and the development activities that they're carrying out. But we've had some really cool recent entrants like the King Salman Relief Fund from Saudi Arabia and um, the South Koreans. So it's not just about Western donors, it's actually about it's a global initiative that pulls together a lot of different people. Thanks, John. You mentioned uh, there's several dimensions, uh, maybe for the, the readers listening in, um, just so you understand a little bit more about the, the data standard as a whole. Uh, some of those dimensions are like the, the title of a project, a, a description of the project, which sectors or categories the, the project is helping with. Then there's things around financial transactions, budgets, geographic information, uh, partners, be it the donors or the implementing organizations. There's documents links, which is again something that uh, FCDO did very well in in making all of that information available. It's one of the the richest sources of documents I think that the data standards has. And there's also monitoring and evaluation um, information, such as um, outputs and, and outcomes, and and sometimes impact. But that's a contentious topic in in the field, so I won't go into that too much. I think we've covered already some of the history. Um, but maybe practically before we do a, a landscape overview of IATI, if somebody wants to look at IATI or get access to IATI, where do they actually go? Where is this IATI data that you mentioned? So the, the best place to start is the, the core IATI website, which is iatistandard.org. And that gives uh, a whole range of documentation on the standard and how to get hold of that data. Like a lot of these data standards, you know, you've got the data standard, which defines the meaning and the relationship between the, the entities. So the IATI data standard describes that. You've also got a channel for publishing and sharing data in the standard. It's almost like a, a data repository where people can go and publish links to, to where the data lives. Um, normally use things like CCAN type repositories so that um, the data doesn't have to be all pulled into one place, but it's all accessible in one place. And then there's tools like portals, like dportal.org, which allow you to visualize the data and see what's there. But there are also, most of these tools also end up with tools that enable you to download a subset of the data in an easy to use format, or indeed a full API, which allows you to programmatically get hold of the data and cut it up in different ways. The tool sets are always evolving in response to the needs of the people who are trying to consume the data. 
And I think it's really useful to get that feedback loop going from people who are trying to achieve a goal with the data and um, get that feedback loop so that they feed that back to the IT standard folks so they can improve the tooling. Thanks, John. Yeah, and it, it's great that you mentioned the the D portal as well. I, I think that's often one of the the first places that individuals go to try and make sense of the of the anti data, and it's a very user friendly portal that people can easily navigate to understand who's doing what where. Really, on the topic of I guess portals and and standards and different channels, sometimes it's a little bit easy to get lost in the world of open data IATI. There's things such as IATI.org, what you mentioned, uh, the D portal. Some people then start, uh, talk about things like uh, UNOCHA's financial tracking services. There's Relief Web. There's Humanitarian Data Exchange, also known as HDX. This is Humanitarian Exchange language, also known as Hexel. How does it all make sense? Can you help the audience and the listeners make sense of this uh, and explain to them how it's all interrelated? There's probably two answers to that. One answer is a super technical answer of how do these entities and relationships and stuff and all the things that we're talking about relate to each other. That's a boring one. The more interesting one is an example of how do you use some of these different standards at different times? So for example, there may be an earthquake happens somewhere. How do you collate all the information that's related to that earthquake in one easy place? And that's somewhere where the humanitarian data exchange is really comes into its own. It allows people to post different data sets of different types of data. There's no single data standard but there's different ways of describing that data, which means that people can take, whether it's data around locality or people in need or things like that, and actually collate that and have that available immediately during the relief effort. Then as you go through the cycle of that, you know, maybe there's post-earthquake reconstruction activity going on, maybe there are a range of things being rebuilt. Maybe there's an educational center or a school or something like that that needs to be rebuilt in that location. That may require some development funding, in which case, you know, one of the major donors would come in and begin to assign a project to say, let's rebuild this educational facility or something like that. But the people who are actually doing the building are probably local contractors. And you've therefore got, you've got people who are, you know, being paid money to actually construct the school or to run the school after it's been built. You would find out who the funders were for that project activity, that would come through something like IATI. That would tell you that you know, a, a national donor would be funding a local INGO to, to begin to design and build a school. And then the INGO would probably be contracting out the build of that school to the contractors. And that's where something like the open contracting data standard would come in, because that allows people then to see things like the tenders and the contracts and make sure that that's really open and clear. So I think there's something about the different standards and the different platforms allow you to have different perspectives on a really complex thing of actually humans interacting and doing doing stuff that helps other humans. And maybe that's uh, yeah one of still the the unrealized potentials of IATI is to really be the the backbone or, or the skeleton of everything that gets done in development and humanitarian work. And I think, like you mentioned, John, the IATI allows this this traceability of understanding who's doing what in the whole uh, development chain. And yeah, I think the, the dream or the hope is also that the, the standard becomes more interoperable with other standards so that we're able to, in a more modular way, kind of connect different standards together and really allow us to connect this mosaic of things that are going on with the sector. So. Yeah, and I think 
there's a lot of potential for AI in this space because for a lot of this, you need forensic detectives. You need people who can poke through the data, really understand the what's going on. And you could probably do that for a thin sliver of that data. But is there a training data set in there? Is there something that we can actually get AI to begin to shed a light on the whole data set and the whole complexity of things? I think that's the potential that we're calling out the Brent's audience here. Let's put AI brains into this space as well as you know people like you and me, Roderick, who can poke through spreadsheets. And I think that's a very nice bridge to the next question, John. With uh, 1,610 publishers, IATI is quite a large structured data set within the, the development and humanitarian sector. How important is structured data such as IATI in a AI future in this sector? IATI is not just structured data. I think IATI is a structured way of packaging data. And I think, as you alluded to earlier, there's actually a rich set of unstructured documents within the whole IATI field. You know, every organization can publish things like the, the original business case that allowed them to, to justify why this project was important, all the way through to the final completion report to say, well, what did this actually achieve? What are the lessons learned? And I think there's something around using the structured data to tell you where, when, and how much did this thing cost versus the unstructured data, which probably tells you the story of did it actually achieve what it went to, meant to achieve? Um, so I think there's real potential for IATI, for AI in that space to begin to explore and help us get better insights out of that out of that data. I think it's a really good point. I mean, I think AI has a a big potential to play on on both the structured and the, the unstructured data. As you mentioned, IATI is both quantitative and qualitative. And there's a lot of information being captured in those documents, and I think the value of AI could be to help us understand what's being published. Yeah, maybe on that. From the work that you've done in the last uh, last 20 years on, on open data and transparency and predominantly IATI, have you seen or do you foresee any good use cases for AI and IATI? And maybe Brent also, if you have any insights that you want to bring in, please do. But John, what have you seen or what would you like to see? Yeah, I think Brent has done a bit of a review and looked at some of this a little bit more as well. So that, let's bring him in, into this later. But I think if you think about the different types of AI, not everything's about ChatGPT, no matter what um, what the hype tells us. But so if we look at you know machine learning applications about spotting patterns, forming predictions, connecting with other data sets that we said, you know, one of the opportunities could be to look at how do we trace aid flows down through the system? How do we go from funder to, to implementer all the way through the delivery chain? My former colleague, Rory Scott, did some amazing work on this a few years ago with um, Neo4j Graph API and actually beginning to, to do that traceability. Now, that then could allow us to start to go, who's funding who? Where are the gaps in that chain? Where do we have less knowledge? That could be really useful. And then that brings in things like anomaly detection. So, for example, if you're starting to flow your way down through the data, where are the gaps? Are the gaps indicating that we've got low quality data? Are the gaps indicating we've got people not filling in and not publishing the right things in the links? Or do the gaps indicate that there's been some instance of leakage or fraud or things like that? You know, there's a whole range of reasons why we, we may have gaps. So can AI help us to identify those anomalies and begin to zero down on them and give the funders the opportunity to go and chase those down and, and understand what's going on? If you think about natural language processing, extracting meaning from text, 
knowledge mining from text, getting deeper information. So all of those documents that we mentioned, can we start to go to get some better meaning from those documents in terms of has this project been a success? Or even right down to simple things like can we better classify the what's happened this project because of the the words that are used in the in the text of the document are much clearer than the the things that have been tagged. There's some really good work done by the Open Ag project run by FAO a few years ago on taking agricultural language out of descriptions of projects and being able to give it SDG mappings on the basis of that. And I think there's some really good good examples of that. We've also seen there's some stuff appearing around from the generative AI world as well, where people can start to build things like business cases or impact measurement frameworks on the basis of generative AI being applied to description of projects. So how do you know what to measure? Well, throw, throw a description of a project at the, this AI tool, something like B.World, and that will then give you a bit of a framework to say, well, you should be measuring these things, which allow you to, to measure the health of your project. So I think there's, there's lots of potential there, but maybe Brent, you've been looking at this space a little bit more. Yeah, thank you, Don, and thank you, Roderick. I'm quite excited about IATI's potential. I think it's good to think of IATI as a matrix of data, and you can visualize all these cross-connecting relationships between aid organizations and what they're doing and who their local-level partners are. And you can kind of navigate through this matrix to identify who's doing what where and who needs what. And I think there's a lot of potential to improve visibility of needs on the ground and who has the local capacity to respond to emergencies and to kind of localize aid activities through this sort of matrix of data and identify, again, who has the capacity to act, who's in the field, who's in the location. So I think the AI age is about optimization and improving the provision of aid. And I think IATI is a key tool in this domain. Almost like your, uh, your routing in your car, when you drive from one location to another, Siri or your Google Maps will help to optimize your route. Well, you know, you can optimize flows of aid in the same way using AI and looking at obstacles and roadblocks and who's doing what and how do you hand off aid at borders and things like that. So I think IATI is going to play an important role in optimizing aid. I'm going to come in with a follow on to that. So, Brent, that's really interesting. I think one of the, the things we also shouldn't forget is who's aid for. So, how do we? How do we use AI to actually help explain or give agency to people who are receiving at the receiving end of the aid programs, whether they're people who are receiving an educational service, a health service, food aid, or something like that? How can AI help those people to participate in that and be really equal partners? Is there something we could do which actually gives people empowerment? Um, well, that's the beneficiary, well, that's the local authorities, governments, and so on. Let's keep thinking from that perspective as well, and not just always from the top down. John, I wanted to mention that I, uh, I spoke at an event for uh, local nonprofits in Colombia, and the question arose of how can IATI and how can open data sharing frameworks help local level actors? And, you know, in the AI age, we're going to be using more conversational search applications. And it's cool to be able to ask, well, in this local village in the heart of Colombia, who's working on maternal health, for example, and Using open data sharing frameworks, a local level organization can actually give themselves visibility in this sort of larger ecosystem of data. And they could actually see it in real time 
they can query themselves and evaluate who can help them and follow the chain from the local level up to a donor level. Well, who's actually supported maternal health in other neighboring locations or neighboring countries? And who are these actors? And who should I reach out to to help support my project? So it, it gives a visibility you know, at the very local, local level in their own indigenous language with the Gates Foundation, for example, that might be able to support an initiative. So it, it's really cool. And that's enabled through technology and these new applications. So this is an exciting time for local level actors and it you know, validates participating in these frameworks from their vantage point. I'm getting even more excited. That's where, you know, could a local company, building company or other type of company actually discover the, a contracting opportunity? So where they can actually be the people who will build a facility that their own community can use. And if that's done openly, transparently, then they have the opportunity to persist, participate in that as well. Yeah, thanks, John and, and Brent for, for the answers. I think one thing I want to share with the audience as well is I first learned about Brent and the excellent work that he's doing through, a, I think it was through an online video where he showed the potential of using the IATI data on an Amazon Alexa device. For me, that was the first real moment where it all kind of clicked. I'm like, yeah, of course, if you have structured data, you could easily build something like a, a chatbot. On top of that, just to query it, it makes perfect sense. So uh, for me, that was, yeah, one of the first, I guess, applications of using the IATI data for something else that isn't just mandatory donor reporting. And just to emphasize as well, the point that John was making, yeah, I really hope that the IATI data in the future together with something like AI can really democratize information for the, the people that we serve. Um, I think with having AI translation in place as well, you know, and being able to change the language based on where the people are that we're, we're trying to help, they should be able to have that information at their fingertips to better understand which international actors funding or, or implementing what activity uh, in the in the area where they might be based. So yeah, I, I think there is indeed a, a lot of potential and a lot of unrealized potential that we haven't even thought about. So it's it's definitely in a very exciting place to, to be at the moment and see where this takes us moving forward. I think there's a temptation here to be really idealistic and really sort of you know, we end up painting that, you know, this is all going to be work really smoothly when um, when, when all, all the things are in place. The real world isn't like that, we know, and I think I'm, I'm trying not to be over optimistic about this, but I think AI with the power of being able to do things quickly and repeatedly and to actually learn from the data itself, you know, the, the self-reinforcing thing that AI can do might make some of the things that we've always struggled with over the past decade or so which have been really difficult and have required things like really lots of manual intervention. How can AI make the boring stuff more effective? Which means that we can then go ahead and actually begin to build some of these in individual use cases around citizen participation or traceability or things like that. I think AI sort of just gives us that extra power, which enables us to go and chase down some of these use cases. I'd like to also emphasize what you said, there's a danger of being too idealistic. And I think we've all experienced that some of the key challenges around even publishing IATI data is getting your own house in order and ensuring that you capture the right data and the right system. And that that data that you then publish is of good quality. Because if we feed in an AI model with garbage, we know that the same garbage is. So 
yeah, thanks for also giving us a reality check, John, that uh, the potential is there, but there's a lot of work as well that us as individuals, as organizations need to do to make sure that the data is ready to be consumed by AI, but also just to be used in general. So um, I think that's a good reminder for listeners as well, that there's still a lot of challenges that we have to face and overcome first before we, we get to our long-term goals. Maybe this is a good time to emphasize that you know organizations are losing narrative control of their messaging to algorithms. So again, you query uh, these new search engines, uh, ChatGPT or BARD, and you ask these kind of questions, and it's almost a black box in terms of where this information is sourced from. So the more information that you can channel through recognized open data sharing frameworks that are highly structured, these are things that the algorithms will favor versus the odd social media posts on Twitter or Facebook or whatnot, or just you know a review of an activity that was published in a local language or something. So in order to regain some of this narrative control, it's very important to channel your information through these frameworks. And algorithms are being developed that actually focus on frameworks that organizations use ahead of other sources of information. So there's sort of a hierarchy of which source of information the algorithm chooses to navigate through first versus another source. So, you know, again, this is just an important time to think about narrative control and information that you report and who are your partners and how are you articulating what you're doing. And this is one of the only ways to control the narrative. Yeah, I strongly agree, Brent. It's a important moment for us to also focus on what we publish and the quality of that, because again, we're not always sure where these language models are learning from. And like you said, we don't always necessarily have control over that. Maybe to, to slowly bring this interview to a close, John, thanks so much for, uh, for taking the time to speak to us about all things open data, transparency, and particularly about IATI. I hope that the, the listeners um, also have some guidance now or some ideas of where to start. Uh, so yeah, do please have a look at the, the IATI registry to have a better understanding of who's publishing what kind of data. And yeah, look at things like the portal or the humanitarian data exchange to, to really get a feel for all the different data and data sets that are being published across all the different actors working in this sector. Um, John, one of the things that we also like to ask our guests is what kind of futuristic AI application would you love to see exist, but that doesn't exist yet? What is your, what is the dream? I think I've got. I've got one in the humanitarian space and one in just the normal social space. I think in the humanitarian space, I'd love to see something that could provide up-to-date situational reports for the crisis, combining those different data sources into a, probably a geographic model that can really be helped to identify key action points for relief organizations. I think some of the components of that already exist through things like OpenStreetMap and so on, but how do you then help get that continually updated in real time so people can really focus on what's right. So that's one thing. I think in a wider context, I've been thinking a lot about deep fakes recently. How can we turn deep fakes into something really useful? And, you know, maybe someone who's lost the ability to communicate through illness, whether it's you know, motor neuron disease or stroke or something like that. Imagine if your synthetic voice could sound just like you. Imagine if you could have your personality in your synthetic voice. What would that do for your self-esteem and your ability to communicate? I think AI could. Let, let's turn the deep fake thing to something useful. 
Thanks so much, John. And yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a great example of how deep fakes could be used in a, in a positive manner. I think often when we hear about deep fakes, we think about the, the negative side of things and the potential scams. But I think this is a, a great topic potentially for another podcast in the future. I think it's a great idea. I'd never consider this myself. And yeah, I, I think this would have a, a lot of value. I think it's great. And as for the, the comment in the humanitarian space, yeah, I think the, the humanitarian sector is three W's. So who does what where? I think being able to use some of the different AI tools to help answer those questions more quickly would be something that would really help save lives in the work that all the different organizations are doing. As we close off the interview for today, we mentioned at the beginning you've, you, you've recently retired. But I know you're not a person to sit still, so you've set up Tetrahedra Digital. Are you still going to focus on things like EIT and open data and transparency, or are you looking to work on another topic? I'm still really curious and I'm really open to looking at other things. Obviously, my core expertise is open data, digital, that sort of thing. But I think something, the climate crisis is something I'm personally exercised about. So, where are the opportunities for us to use the skills that I've developed through international development into some specific climate opportunities? And something I'd really like to learn more about. I'm going to be attending the NetHope Summit next week, which I'm hoping to make some connections there in terms of learning a little, just a little bit more about how does climate environment work. I'm an earth scientist by background, so that's something where I've got a natural affinity to. And um, you know, really interested to explore some opportunity to at least learn and understand a bit more, and hopefully in the future contribute. That's great to hear, John. And and again, speaking professionally and personally. My team's also been involved in some of the, the climate and carbon footprint work for my current organization. And I can tell you, there's a lot of work that needs to be done around data collection, data cleaning, and data standards. So I think you've got your work cut out for you, and there's definitely enough organizations and people that could use your help. And as you mentioned, I look forward to catching up with you at NetHope's Global Summit in München. And hopefully there we can continue our conversations around AI and also better understand what all the different humanitarian actors are working on, and also what the different technology vendors are proposing to see what kind of technologies could actually help us achieve our goals. John, thank you. It's been a pleasure speaking to you today. Brent, also thank you for being on the call. This brings this edition of Humanitarian AI Today to a close. Thank you all for listening.